Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Am I walking into eternity along Sandy Mount Strand? This is a question Stephen Dedalus asks himself in the Proteus chapter of Ulysses, as he wanders on the sand and traps himself in his own thoughts. It's easy to see what he meant when you walk on the strand at low tide, on what looks like a never-ending flat expanse. You see it especially on overcast days, when everywhere you look is grey. Silver-grey puddled sand below you, iron-grey Irish sea before you, or snot-green sea as Joyce saw it, and the sky above you grey like willow catkins. I feel this slightly desolate starkness is what defines a strand as opposed to a beach. Being beached is a problem only for ships and whales. When a person is trapped beyond all help, we say they are stranded. I've seen a lot of overcast early mornings on Sandy Mount Strand, as well as cold, bright ones and gusty, faltering ones, and every other kind of morning Dublin Bay has to offer. It's all in service of the Irish Wetland Bird Survey, or IWEBS for short, when volunteer birdwatchers such as myself flock to the strands and beaches and other assorted wet places of Ireland, to count the water birds seeking the shelter of our mild winters. Usually occurring one Saturday a month between September and March, these efforts are coordinated by Birdwatch Ireland and supported by the National Parks and Wildlife Service, and they help to inform Irish and EU policy. Their subjects are waders and geese, ducks and gulls, tough birds for whom a spell on the strand might as well be a sun holiday. Every autumn, tens of millions of birds fly south from their summer breeding sites in places like Iceland, Greenland and Canada, along what ornithologists call the East Atlantic Flyway. Ireland is an important stop along this flyway, visited by hundreds of thousands of birds annually. Some will stay here until the spring, while others venture on to southern Europe or even Africa. Tens of thousands opt to come to Sandy Mount Strand and other parts of Dublin Bay. The bay is a site of international importance to the light-bellied Brent goose, the black-tailed godwit and the bar-tailed godwit, meaning that for these species Dublin Bay supports over 1% of the whole East Atlantic population. Dublin Bay's importance to these migrating birds draws the binoculars and telescopes of our Sandy Mount survey team, meeting every month at the Martello Tower and setting out in two groups. There aren't many things that could bring me out of my bed before dawn on a wet winter Saturday. This morning, as every other, the birds are worth it. It's always a joy to survey them, even when the rain spatters my lenses and my cold fingers can barely work the focus wheel. Hardened travellers, they appear nonchalant as they work the cold sand and huddle in gossipy-looking crowds by the surf. Like Darwin's finches, they've divided the spoils of the habitat according to their bill shape. The tiny white sanderlings running at the water's edge look like sea foam given life, with stout black beaks for seizing small crustaceans. A shell duck raises his elegant green head above the others, like an officer inspecting the ranks. His red bill not just a status symbol, but a tool for filtering tiny snails from the water. My favourite is the almost impossibly long and curved bill of the curlew, which can reach the deep burrows of worms and give voice to the curlew's hauntingly lonely call. In Irish, they are called crutach, a word for crook-backed, which can also serve as a form of crohul, meaning shapely or beautiful. It fits them well. When you're standing on an infinite strand and recording the steady passage of the birds, 
you are tempted to feel that it is all eternal and unbreakable. These birds were part of Dublin Bay before us birdwatchers, before Daedalus and Joyce, before the pigeon house chimneys or the piers of Dunleary, but still they are vulnerable. Results from the IWeb surveys were published in a 2019 report authored by Leslie Lewis and colleagues, and they paint a stark picture. The total estimated population of Ireland's wintering waterbirds has dropped by 15% over the past 15 years. The worst affected species are the scop, the goldeneye and the potchard, which have declined by over 80%. The report, available online, highlights climate change among a list of threats facing the waterbirds of the East Atlantic. Tides come in and out, seasons change, and every year the birds return to Sandy Mount Strand. Long may they continue walking, flying and swimming into eternity. You can keep your golden beaches. Here's a good table quiz question. What do Pope Benedict, Les Dawson and James Joyce have in common? The answer is that these unlikely bedfellows share the same birthday, February the 2nd. For a man of letters, Joyce was, surprisingly, highly superstitious. He kept vigil the night of his mother's death, expecting to see her ghost. He also had an almost primeval fear of thunder, having been instructed by Dante Conway, his governess, that was a warning from God to be always prepared for death. Even in later life, he trembled at the sound. Once, when asked why, he replied to his questioner, you were not brought up in Catholic Ireland. His superstitions extended to a strong belief in the significance of dates and historical coincidences. The best-known example is, of course, his placing of the entire action of Ulysses on the 16th of June 1904 the day of his first date with his life partner, Nora Barnacle. However, never far from his thoughts was the date of his own birthday. In 1902, Joyce left Dublin for Paris, ostensibly to study medicine. In reality, he was setting off to test himself as an artist, and his time there was spent in privation. For his 21st birthday, he'd been expecting to receive money from his spendthrift father, and was not amused when he only received some cards. However, he still managed to treat himself to a visit to the theatre. During the following years, he experienced apparently insurmountable problems getting his short story collection, Dubliners, published. So he regarded it as a lucky omen when his patron and publisher, Harriet Weaver, decided to begin publishing a portrait of the artist as a young man on his 32nd birthday in 1914. By now Joyce was living in Trieste and about to start on Ulysses. As with all Irish citizens at the time, he held a British passport and when World War I broke out, he relocated to Zurich in neutral Switzerland. After the Treaty of Versailles was signed, he moved to Paris where he completed his novel seven years after putting pen to paper. Still deeply attached to his belief in coincidences, 
He wanted the publication of his masterpiece to occur on his next birthday, his 40th. This placed a well-nigh impossible task on his publisher Sylvia Beach of Shakespeare and Company, as Joyce kept making amendments to each printer's proof as they became available. He also insisted that the colour on the front cover be the cobalt blue of the Greek national flag. And even four days before his birthday, he was still arguing about the precise shade of dye to be used. His final draft arrived at the Dijon-based printers with two days to spare. By now he was, in his own words, in a state of energetic prostration. To meet his birthday deadline, two copies were printed the following day and rushed overnight on the Dijon Paris Express, where they were collected at seven in the morning from the conductor by Miss Beach. She presented Joyce with one and placed the other in the window of her bookstore. That evening, he celebrated his birthday over dinner with friends in Ferraris. He ate nothing and sat with his unwrapped present under his chair until after dessert. Then, to generous toasts, he opened the package containing the novel which would come to be seen as a masterpiece of modernist literature. Ever true to his fixation with significant dates, Joyce wanted the publication of his final major work, or monster as he called it, Finnegan's Wake, to be published on his 57th birthday. He had spent 16 years writing it. The publishers, Faber and Faber, made sure a copy arrived on time. For Joyce's birthday party of family and close friends, his daughter-in-law Helen Fleischmann arranged the table to represent France and Ireland, with a glass decanter shaped like the Eiffel Tower at one end and a glass bottle to represent Nelson's pillar at the other. A mirror down the centre of the table served as the English Channel. She also ordered a special birthday cake with copies of his seven books etched out in icing on the top. The party was a great success and featured piano playing, much singing and the reading of the final pages of the work. Everyone departed in high spirits, none more so than the painter Frank Bodgen, a confidant of Joyce since their Zurich days. Lots of fun, he called to Joyce as he left. Lots of fun at Finnegan's Wake. Tim Finnegan lived in Walker Street, an Irish gentleman and mighty odd. He'd a beautiful baroque so rich and sweet, and to rise in the world he carried the hod. Now Tim had a sort of a tippling way, with a love for the liquor poor Tim was born. And to help him through with his work each day, he'd a drop of the crater every morn. Whack! Hurrah now, dance to your partner's wealth, the floor your trotters shake. Isn't it the truth? Jenny O'Toole, born in Baltinglass, County Wicklow in 1858, would become better known as Jenny Wise Power, one of the most famous activists and politicians of her era. Jenny's husband, John Wise Power, was a significant contributor to Irish life in his own right, as a journalist, a nationalist, one of the founders of the GAA and first president of the Dublin County Board. He was also known to James Joyce, Indeed, both John and Jenny feature in Ulysses, thinly disguised as the wise Nolans. We join in as Leopold Bloom is leaving Davy Byrne's pub, where he has just washed down his gorgonzola sandwich with a nice glass of burgundy. After Bloom leaves, Davy Byrne and Nosy Flynn start gossiping about him. Flynn says, I met him the day before yesterday 
and he coming out of that Irish farm dairy John Wise Nolan's wife has in Henry Street with a jar of cream in his hand, taking it home to his better half. Flynn is referring to Jenny's Shopcom restaurant named the Irish Farm Produce Company at 21 Henry Street. This was an exceptional business for various reasons. First, Jenny was a by Irish pioneer selling Irish produce including eggs, butter and the cream that Bloom was bringing home to Molly. Secondly, her restaurant served vegetarian fare, fairly unusual in the Dublin of 1904. She would go on to run a chain of four such businesses. And crucially, Jenny's place became something of a hub for leading nationalists, including Arthur Griffith, Major John McBride and others. By 1904, Jenny Wise Parr herself had already held leadership roles in various nationalist organisations, such as the Ladies' Land League and Inneen Naharan. When Joyce wrote Ulysses between 1914 and 1921, it was with the benefit of hindsight. He would have known that Jenny would become a household name. By 1905, she was one of the co-founders with Griffith of a new political party, what would become known as the first Sinn Féin. By 1911, she was one of its vice presidents. In 1914, Jenny became the first president of Common Naman. Indeed, she was so immersed in the evolving politics of the day that the proclamation of the Irish Republic was signed in her house on the 24th of April, 1916. So the next time you are on Henry Street, look out for the commemorative plaque at number 21. Returning to the book, we first observe John Wise on Parliament Street. Joyce was fond of wordplay. John Wise is presented as the most balanced and fair-minded of the nationalists portrayed in Ulysses. Mind you, Jenny never used the double-barrelled version of her name, remarking in her self-deprecating way that there was nothing wise about her. John Wise Power is also reputed to have coined the rather risque phrase Kiss my royal Irish arse in response to Queen Victoria's controversial visit to Ireland in 1900. Incidentally, the phrase does appear in Ulysses, but in the mouth of another character. Back to Parliament Street. Joyce subtly reveals John's opposition to colonial rule as he describes his cool, unfriendly eyes watching the Lord Lieutenant's carriage pass by. Later in Barney Kiernan's pub, John laments the deforestation of Ireland. As treeless as Portugal will be soon, he declares. The narrator soon launches into a reverie in which John marries Miss Fear Conifer. The all-female guests are named after trees, with names like Miss Holly Hazel Eyes, Miss Virginia Creeper, Mrs Maud Mahogany and so on. John's bride wears green silk, the maids of honour, costumes of the same tone. Joyce may be giving the nod to Jenny and her feminist and nationalist comrades. All of those ladies and the wearing of the green. But of course, I could, so to speak, be barking up the wrong tree. A few pages on, still in Kiernan's pub, and in one of the most important exchanges in the whole of Ulysses, John asks Bloom a famous question, which receives an equally famous answer. But do you know what a nation means, says John? A nation, says Bloom. A nation is the same people living in the same place. The pub talk ticks on an anti-Semitic tone after Bloom leaves. John comes to Bloom's defence and then cryptically claims that Bloom whose father was a Hungarian Jew, gave the ideas for Sinn Féin to Griffith. 
Certainly Griffith saw many analogies between Ireland and Hungary, both small countries with links to large empires. Jenny admired but did not always agree with her long-standing colleague Arthur Griffith, particularly when he stated in 1913 that female suffrage could wait until after Ireland achieved some form of self-government. As to Joyce, he was simultaneously preoccupied with and ambivalent about the nationalist question. Ulysses was published in Paris on the 2nd of February 1922, just as Ireland was moving towards a disastrous civil war. Three days later, on the 5th of February, Jenny failed to convince her Kamunman colleagues to wait before taking sides on the treaty. Jenny was the only leading member of Kamunman to not adopt an anti-treaty position. Undeterred and surviving many challenges in the years ahead, she took her seat in the first Shannadaran on the 11th of December 1922 at the age of 64. She served as a senator for 14 years and consistently fought for the rights of Irish women. Jenny Wise Power's trailblazing contribution to Irish public life has not yet received the recognition it deserves. Yet a brief but honourable mention in Ulysses is in itself a kind of recognition. You might even say it's a kind of immortality. For most of my life, four of the Martello Towers that punctuate Dublin's coastline between Bray in the south and Belbriggan in the north have been part of my personal geography. In particular, the round three-storey towers on Dalkey Island, in Blackrock Park where the commuter dart train passes within yards, the Seapoint Tower that watched over many of my summer days, and also the most famous Martello Tower of them all at Sandy Cove, known to many as James Joyce's Tower. And for many of those years, the only thing I, and anyone I asked, knew about them was that they were built to defend Dublin from French invasion. Some thought they were named after a place in Italy, or perhaps the tower's architect. Even James Joyce, whose four-night stay in the Sandy Cove Tower in 1904 inspired him to set the first chapter of his novel Ulysses there, showed little knowledge of the tower's history. Never shy of showing off knowledge, he only gives the tower's history two lines. Martello, you call it. Billy Pitt had them built, Buck Mulligan said, when the French were on the sea. That's it. A few years ago, wanting to know more, I asked heritage colleagues Jerry Clabby, Rob Goodbody and Jason Bolton to help me unravel the story of the Dublin Towers. We began with the name. Martello turned out to be the anglicisation of Mortella, the Italian for the shrub myrtle, which was the name of a point overlooking the Gulf of San Fiorenzo on the northern coast of the island of Corsica. In 1565, a tower was built there by military architect Giovanni Giacomo Palieri Fratino. For more than two centuries, his cylindrical three-storey tower stood in obscurity. Indeed, it might never have come to wider notice had two British warships not attacked the tower in 1794. 
For two days, their 50 cannon bombarded the tower that was defended by barely 30 soldiers, a single rooftop cannon and limited arms. So impressed were the British with the remarkable show of resistance that after they captured it, they copied its measurements and then used it as the model for coastal defences throughout the empire, from Sri Lanka to Tobago, from the south coast of England to South Africa, and in Ireland, from Derry to Wexford. The towers between Bray and Belbriggan were the first Dublin defences built since medieval times. They were also unique. These Martello towers were the only ones built to defend a city, and the only ones designed as a cohesive defensive chain. In 1804 and 1805, 28 Martello towers and associated gun batteries were constructed. These were formidable defences. There were 28 sites with 65 18 and 24 pounder cannons that could fire up to 1700 metres. They were manned by over 400 artillerymen, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 12 towers were built north of the Liffey, between Sutton and Belbriggan. These largely worked in pairs to protect potential landing areas. The 16 sites south of the Liffey defended the wide sandy beaches and easy landing areas of Bray, Killiney, Dunleary, Seapoint, Blackrock and Sandymount. They formed a cohesive military unit, with the fire from each overlapping with up to three others. Any attempt to land here would have been met with the fury of at least eight cannon and in some places up to 17. Early drawings and paintings show many of the towers as the most imposing structures in a rural landscape. The only buildings along the coast apart from a fisherman's cottage or two. It wasn't the Normandy beaches, but it was the most militarised coastline in Ireland. However, the towers soon lost their purpose. The defeat of Napoleon finally robbed them of their raison d'etre, and the towers started on a road to where today it is hard to fully appreciate their original use. In time, some were demolished to make way for the construction of the railway, first to Dunleary and then Bray. Others were destroyed when their foundations were undermined by the ever-encroaching sea. As the city of Dublin expanded, the towers became enveloped by suburbia, posh villas, Victorian terraces and coastal amenities, which transformed them into quaint, picturesque structures. Eight were turned into domestic dwellings, robbing them of any sinister intent. With time, even those surviving in their original setting, particularly on Dalkey Island, Ireland's Eye and Shenick's Island in Skerries, have come to appear as curious oddities. Just two have been fully restored with replica working cannons, at Kalini by Neil O'Donoghue and at Seapoint by the local authority. The other two to survive were converted into tourism attractions. The Hoth Tower became ye old hurdy-gurdy museum of vintage radio and the one at Sandy Cove, a museum dedicated to James Joyce and the first chapter of Ulysses, and where each year on June 16th, the world's literary community turns to celebrate the genius of a Dubliner. And so synonymous is the Sandy Cove Martello Tower with Joyce and his great novel, that I have often wondered how the history of world literature might have changed if those two British warships had not sailed into the Gulf of San Fiorenzo to attack an obscure tower at Punto di Mortella in 1794.
There are 16 geese in James Joyce's Ulysses. These are not accidental geese. Joyce fell in love with a goose when he found his Nora Barnacle, freshly flown east from Galway. You might call Nora the central goose in Ulysses, in the form of plump, warm Molly Bloom, the wife that Leopold Bloom cannot stop thinking about, and who eventually delivers her soliloquy from the nest of her bed. In the same way Bloom's Molly runs like a refrain through his thoughts in Ulysses, in real life Joyce was preoccupied with Nora. She filled him up and followed his flight wherever he went. In their 37-year relationship, Joyce and Nora were rarely parted. Separated from her, Joyce could barely function. When he was in Ireland and Nora was in Trieste, they exchanged urgent erotic letters to keep themselves and their love tight. When Nora was in Ireland and Joyce in Paris, he fainted in the bookshop Shakespeare and Company from the lonely distress of being without her. Joyce predeceased Nora by 10 years and she lived out those years in Zurich until her own death. Geese fly in and out of Ulysses in the form of exiled wild geese and in the minds of both Stephen Dedalus and Bloom. Stephen, walking on Sandymount Strand, thinking of the missing body of a drowned man, muses that God becomes man, becomes fish, becomes barnacle goose, becomes featherbed mountain. In Joyce's masterpiece, God doesn't become just any goose, but a barnacle goose, the best bird of all in Joyce's parade of geese, the goose he loved, trusted and mated with for life. Joyce, when he had Stephen make his leap from God to barnacle goose, may have had in mind an old clerical debate about whether barnacle geese might really be considered fish, not flesh, and therefore suitable to eat on Fridays. This debate stemmed from medieval naturalists observing goose barnacles, a different species entirely, and coming to some fanciful conclusions. Gerald of Wales, writing in the 12th century Topographia Hibernia, assumed marine barnacles were the eggs of barnacle geese. He wrote, The geese are produced from fir timber tossed along the sea and are at first like gum. Afterwards, they hang down by their beaks as if they were a seaweed attached to the timber and are surrounded by shells in order to grow more freely. Barnacles do not breed and lay eggs like other birds. For sure, marine barnacles cling to surfaces and grow shells, but the clergy seized on the barnacle goose with its seemingly fantastical practices as a prayer answered. If the geese grew on trees and rocks, they could only be fish, not fowl. This is just the sort of whimsical thinking that writers thrive on, and no doubt James Joyce enjoyed this barnacle-related fancy and loved Nora's unusual surname all the more because of it. In The Dead, Joyce's short story set on the 6th of January, Women's Christmas, Gabriel came to his aunt's generously laden party table, ready to carve a flock of geese if necessary. At one end of the table lay a fat brown goose, among little minsters of jelly red and yellow, a shallow dish full of blocks of blancmange and red jam, a large green leaf-shaped dish with a stalk-shaped handle, on which lay bunches of purple raisins and peeled almonds, a companion dish 
on which lay a solid rectangle of Smyrna figs. This is surely one of the most beautiful fictional descriptions of food, and it was written when Joyce and Nora were on their uppers in Rome in 1907, gasping, no doubt, for a taste of goose or jam or figs. Their Christmas dinner that year consisted of dishes of plain pasta. James Joyce's father quipped about Nora Barnacle that she would stick to Joyce, and so she did. She was a pragmatic, optimistic woman, and despite all hardships, she remained goose and featherbed to Joyce. She honked at him and harassed him, for sure, to keep him straight. But Nora was also always James Joyce's soft place to land. Trieste is surrounded by limestone hills and the wind sweeps down and blows across the wide piazzas. It's an elegant city, built in white stone that catches the sun, a city that faces the sea. We went there last summer on a kind of pilgrimage. Of course, they weren't meant to go there at all, Jim and Nora. Joyce thought he was travelling to a job with the Berlitz School in Zurich. He'd paid two guineas to a Miss Guilford of the Midland Scholastic Agency in Lincolnshire. Unfortunately, Miss Guilford was not an agent for Berlitz, and Jim was duped. I remember going to an interview in Bewley's in Westmoreland Street in 1976. I was 19 and heading off on my own for the first time. An agency was recruiting staff for pubs in London, and I paid my £20 before heading off with my bit of paper. The pub was there okay, but they claimed never to have heard of the company who'd sent me. The manager bluntly told me I wasn't wanted, and so I left with my tail between my legs. I still blush at my naivety, but at least I'm in good company. Me and 22-year-old Jim Joyce, off like Egypt's to non-existent jobs. And what of Nora, at 20 years of age, heading off to Europe, an unmarried girl who didn't speak French or Italian and who was totally dependent upon Jim to support her until she found her feet? Now there was an act of courageous faith in her young man. When they got to Zurich, to the non-existent job, Jim blagged and charmed the director of the Berlitz School, who found a position for him in Trieste and the company paid their fares. Now that's impressive blagging. Except when they got to Trieste, there was no vacancy, and so off they headed again, this time on a steamer, at the company's expense, 150 miles south to Pola on the Dalmatian coast, where Berlitz was opening a new school. At Easter the following year, 1905, Jim got a transfer to the school in Trieste, and this elegant city became the couple's home for more than a decade. Jim and Nora loved Trieste, with its opera house, its fountains, its wide squares, its outdoor cafes and its cosmopolitan glamour. Part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, 
It attracted the best opera singers as they moved between Milan and Vienna. In the narrow Via San Nicola, standing outside the apartment where Jim and Nora lived and where Giorgio, their son, was born, I feel the hair stand on the back of my neck. From there, we stroll around the adjoining streets and try to find some of the other eight addresses where the Signor and Signora lived. Later, I have my photo taken with the life-size statue of Joyce crossing the bridge over the Grand Canal in the Piazza Ponteroso, one of their favourite places in the city. And as I pose with my arm around his shoulder and look towards the sea, I marvel at my companion and feel as close to Jim Joyce as if he were living and breathing beside me. The Joyces, as they were known, moved often in Trieste, always one step ahead or behind financial ruin. But Jim and Nora had a knack of finding cheap rooms or bad rooms in great locations and used the city as their drawing room. All the addresses are clustered around the best and smartest part of town, close to the shops, cafes, theatres, piazzas and the seafront. They might have led a hand-to-mouth existence, but they lived with style and flair. They enjoyed city life. They attended the opera and dined out. And when the money ran out, Jim scrounged with great success from all and sundry. And Nora did her bit too. Three weeks after the birth of Giorgio, she took in washing to supplement their meagre earnings, all the while fuming that Jim wouldn't use his beautiful voice in that city of song to earn a little more. My beloved and I take coffee in the Opera House Café where Jim and Nora like to sit. The sun bathes the square and the breeze carries the sea air. We smile at each other across the table as lovers do. Here, more than a hundred years ago, James Joyce sat, a young twenty-something with big ideas and a walking stick, dreaming of forging the uncreated conscience of his race, writing stories of Dublin with not a bob in his pocket. You'd have to love him, this young Jim Joyce, as Nora did. Blagger, poser, scrounger, jealous lover, young fellow with an unshakable faith in his own talent. We sit there and soak up the atmosphere, and then we raise a glass in memory and in honour. Here's to you, Jim Joyce, writer, genius, lover of Trieste. On Sunday, Miss Lennelly's mix of both new and archive scripts, we heard Eternity Along the Strand by Fionn O'Markey. James Joyce's birthday was by Jerry Maloney. Cora Crampton brought us The Wise Powers and Ulysses. The Matella Towers of Dublin was from Tim Carey. Nuala O'Connor gave us the true Ulysses goose. And here's to you, Jim's Joyce. Joyce in Trieste was by Kevin McDermott. The music this morning included Flute Sonatina Opus 19 by Malcolm Arnold and played by Judith Pierce. Finnegan's Wake was sung by Barry Gleeson. We Sail the Ocean Blue by Gilbert and Sullivan was performed by the Blindbourne Festival Course. Bloom and Lead by Gustav Lang was played by Ralph Ritchie on piano. And Maripar Tutor Moore by the opera, from the opera Martha was sung by UC Bjorling. Also, if you'd like to find out more about the iWeb's Bird Survey Project, which was mentioned around the top of the programme, there are, delay, are details on birdwatchireland.ie. Also, Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson, and the producer of the programme is Sarah Binchy. 